Furniture. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, today on our weekly roundtable, the fight for the future of U.S. domestic policy, the Build Back Better Act. Bernie Sanders is not backing down from his push for uh, spending $3.5 trillion. And President Biden says the U.S. is at an inflection point that this investment is needed now, but Senator Manchin is in the way. So is the filibuster. Senator Manchin wants to cut the proposed Build Back Better Act figure in half, but that won't fly with Senator Sanders and other progressives and Democrats also need a big win given the midterm elections in 2022. Some are saying that Biden's Build Back Better Act is the largest social program proposed since FDR's New Deal. Is the Build Back Better Act a U.S. version of democratic socialism in the U.S.? And as we mark the 10th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, will conservatives on both sides of the aisle insist that the United States continue on the path of unfettered prioritization of the market over the care of people and the environment? And meanwhile, conservatives are complaining that jobs are not getting filled as post-COVID some workers are refusing work that doesn't pay a living wage and is destructive to their bodies. Conservatives blame Biden's COVID relief subsidies that people are not taking jobs they don't want, blame corporate greed. And lessons learned all around from the California governor recall election. What do California Democrats prioritize now? What are the implications on the national scene? And U.S. foreign policy. Is the U.S. influence waning? Recently alienating the EU, including France, and the U.S. seems to bypass traditional allies to cut a military deal with Australia and the U.K. against China. Europe, meanwhile, is trying to carve its own path in a post-Angela Merkel era. All this as insurrectionists descend yet again on the U.S. Capitol. We, our panelists are Jackie Goldberg, Laura Carlson, Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Food and Drug Administration advisors are debating whether there's enough proof that a booster dose of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine is safe and effective. It's the first public step toward deciding which Americans may get an extra dose and when. Top FDA official Peter Marks said officials know there may be differing opinions as to the interpretation of the data regarding the potential need for a booster. And we strongly encourage all the different viewpoints to be voiced and discussed regarding the data, which is complex and evolving. We're committed to focusing on the science and will drive our decision making 
and will carefully consider those data in the context of the clear and obvious public health need to continue slowing the spread of COVID-19, which at this time is leading to the deaths of close to 2,000 Americans each day. Most of them unvaccinated. Marks added that the role of the advisory committee is to focus on the science related to Pfizer's application to administer third doses and not to discuss operational issues or global vaccine equity. The World Health Organization has argued against booster doses for the upper income nations, which have monopolized the lion's share of vaccines. Most people in many poor nations have yet to receive a single dose. A federal judge has ruled the Biden administration must stop using a Trump-era public health order to quickly expel migrants with children who are apprehended along the U.S.-Mexico border. U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan issued an order giving the government two weeks to halt a practice that opponents say illegally deprives people of their right to seek asylum. The public health order known as Title 42 was adopted under the Trump administration early in the pandemic. The Biden administration stopped expelling children but continues to remove adults traveling by themselves and some families. The organization Human Rights First, which has documented cases of kidnapping and sexual assault among families and individuals sent to Mexico under the policy, urged the administration to stop the use of Title 42 before the injunction takes effect in two weeks. Congressional Democrats are calling top executives at ExxonMobil and other oil giants to testify at a House hearing as lawmakers investigate what they say is a long-running industry-wide campaign to spread disinformation about the role of fossil fuels in causing global warming. Nadia Ramlagan reports. Congressional Democrats on Thursday asked the heads of four major oil companies and two lobbying groups to testify on whether the industry led an effort to mislead the public and prevent action to fight climate change. Earlier this year, oil lobbyist Keith McCoy admitted some of the industry's tactics. Did we aggressively fight against some of the science? Uh, yes. The lawmakers cited a study in the peer-reviewed journal Climatic Change that said 91 think tanks and advocacy organizations that downplayed global warming were funded by ExxonMobil and industry groups. I'm Nadia Ramlagan for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Security fencing is back up around the U.S. Capitol ahead of tomorrow's planned Justice for J6 rally. Organizers are calling for freedom for those arrested in the violent January 6th insurrection. Former President Trump has weighed in with a statement of support saying that, quote, our hearts and minds are with the people being persecuted so unfairly related to the January 6th protest concerning the rigged presidential election. Trump added, quote, in addition to everything else, it has proven conclusively that we are a two-tiered system of justice. In the end, however, justice will prevail, Trump said. More than 600 people are facing federal charges in the insurrection that injured dozens of officers and sent lawmakers and Vice President Pence fleeing for safety. The more serious felony charges include assault, obstruction of an official proceeding, and conspiracy. One of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach former President Trump for his role in inciting the January insurrection at the Capitol announced last night he will not seek re-election next year. In a statement, Anthony Gonzalez cited his two young children for his decision and noted the chaotic political environment that currently infects our country. 
The 36-year-old former NFL player would have faced a primary fight from Max Miller, a former Trump White House aide that Trump is supporting. Ohio's Republican Party formally censured Gonzalez in May for his impeachment vote. In an interview with the New York Times, Gonzalez called Trump a cancer for the country who represents a threat to democracy. Gonzalez said he plans to spend his time now working to prevent Trump from being elected to the White House again. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and it is our weekly roundtable. And we are going to start off with uh, U.S. domestic policy as President Biden tries to make some major changes in that policy, particularly in social programs. Some say that it is the most expansive since FDR's New Deal. Now, uh, what I'd like to do is to welcome first our panelists and then introduce our first segment. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, director of the America's Program, who works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization based in Mexico City. She's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura Carlson is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. Always a pleasure to be here. Yes, and Jackie Goldberg, governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Well, thank you for inviting me. Good to be back. Okay, and Jackie Goldberg, how are you faring? We know that the school board in Los Angeles, uh, the second um, largest, I think, uh, school district in the nation, now have uh, put in place these COVID uh, measures. And uh, how is it going? How are you doing? Well, we're still, how are you holding you know, up? <laughs> we're still beset with anti-vaxxers, of course, but but they don't represent the bulk of the parents and the families. The parents and the families have been very happy that we're mandating this. They would love to be able to have their children under 12 vaccinated as well. But it is only a piece, remember, of our major plan. We test everybody every week, so that means that we do about 100,000 COVID tests a day. We have masking. We have filters in our rooms. We have outdoor eating. We have a variety of ways we're trying to protect it. And I'm happy to say and proud to say that while 1,400 schools in 35 states have already been closed due to COVID outbreaks, LA Unified has not closed a single school. Right. Well, uh, that's very good news indeed. And uh, thank you. Dr. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. 
century, um, which has been uh, won the um, American uh, Book Award. Uh, congratulations again, Dr. Horn. And uh, we're very happy that you came through the, the recent storm uh, that battered uh, Texas unscathed. Dr. Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. All righty. And so um, starting now with U.S. domestic policy and Build Back Better, the fight for the future of U.S. domestic policy underway, both within the Democratic Party and between Democrats and Republicans. Central to this is the debate over the Build Back Better Act, which is a $3.5 trillion deal that is still making its way through Congress. It forms part of the broader and fuller um, $7 trillion program proposed by President Biden aimed at providing COVID relief, poverty alleviation, and infrastructure development, among other things. You might recall that there was a bipartisan uh, infrastructure uh, deal uh, that was uh, made earlier, and this is the second piece of it, uh, the piece that Biden refers to as the caring economy. Now, a September 27th deadline has been established for the House to pass the remaining infrastructure measure. On Wednesday, September 15th, the House Ways and Means Committee approved a major portion of the $3.5 trillion package, including provisions that would increase taxes on high-income people and corporations in order to offset the cost of the new spending. And it was a near party line vote, actually, um, with Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy, a Democrat from Florida, joining Republicans against the measure. It now advances to the House Budget Committee, which will bring together the diverse provisions of the spending package approved by the House panels. But disagreements are taking place not only between the parties, but including within the Democratic Party. On Wednesday, September 15th, the House Energy and Commerce Committee voted to drop a proposal to let Medicare negotiate to reduce drug prices. Potentially, this could derail the entire um, Build Back Better Act. The Energy and Commerce vote on the drug pricing proposal was 29-29, with three right-leaning Democrats joining Republicans to oppose it. They include Representative Scott Peters of California, Kathleen Rice of New York, and Kurt Schrader of Oregon. Another right leaning Democrat, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, has pushed for a halt on Build Back Better. Also on Wednesday, President Biden met with the Democrats' two most prominent uh, holdout, two senators on Build Back Better Act, that Senator Manchin of West Virginia and Arizona Senator uh, Kristen uh, Cinema. And while Democratic members of the Senate Budget Committee may have agreed on the size of the Build Back Better Act, Kristen Cinema has not. Okay, so what we're going to do now is to just go to a clip now to hear what President Biden has to say. President Biden calling on the super wealthy to pay their fair share of taxes. He says the top 1% are playing by their own set of rules and getting away with paying virtually nothing. 
Let's bring in ABC's Elizabeth Schulze, along with business correspondent Deirdre Bolton for more. Thank you, colleagues, for joining us. Elizabeth, let me start with you. President Biden says he's confident that Congress will pass both his bipartisan infrastructure deal and the $3.5 trillion Build Back Better plan. What's the latest on where those packages stand? Well, Kenneth, the president really trying to get these two packages across the finish line, but there is still some way to go here. We know that House Democrats have spent the week really trying to figure out the details and getting this massive piece of legislation, this budget bill, that $3.5 trillion bill, into writing. And that there are a couple of major sticking points. You know, they seem to agree on a lot of the main priorities of this bill, things like health care, education, climate change. But the amount of spending has been a real problem in trying to get the moderates and the progressives on board. And then, of course, the key question that's been trying to be worked out this week is how to pay for these plans, including raising taxes on the wealthiest Americans and on corporations. So these details are being worked out. The hope is to get this done quickly so that the Senate can then kind of move forward with that, and the House can also move forward with that bipartisan infrastructure bill. We know that this is a real balancing act in trying to make sure that every Democrat in the Senate is on board, because essentially no Republicans are going to vote for that $3.5 trillion package, Kenneth. All righty. So, Laura Carlson, we're going to start with you. Uh, certainly, um, from the progressive end, uh, people would have liked to see the bill, this Build Back Better Act, a lot stronger. Nevertheless, there really is a lot in it, a lot in it that is historic. And um, looking at a headline that uh, former Treasury Secretary uh, Bob Rubin who is centrist, former Treasury Secretary, he has written to the Washington Post supporting the expanded child tax credit, saying that it must become permanent and fully refundable. That uh, the child tax credit has turned out uh, to be extremely popular on both sides of the aisle. And also is the US, it's the first entry in a way to having the kind of child allowance that practically every developed nation in the world has, um, except with the exception of the United States. So, your thoughts? I mean, do you, uh, on this um, on this new new plan, and also the threats by these two Democratic senators to derail it, because uh, clearly the. Democrats have to go through a reconciliation process, given also the filibuster standing in the way to approach it any other way. Laura Carlson, your thoughts on this Build Back Better Act? Thanks, Margaret. Right, it continue, continues to be a very complicated process. But this package, I'm convinced, and many are, can be truly transformational in terms of both social and economic relations and redistribution of power and wealth within the country. And I think that Biden's commitment to it has been remarkable. He said, we can build an economy that gives working people a fair shot this time. We can restore some sanity and fairness to our tax code and make investments that we know are long overdue in the nation. And that's the core of what's happening here. We're no longer talking about a safety net in pandemic times. Um, we have to understand, too, that the whole concept of a safety net, the people on the bottom are not falling. They are constantly and brutally being pushed down by the system. So the idea is not to catch them, but to stop pushing them down. And this requires some of the kinds of remedial measures that we're seeing, reparations. The package should be seen in this light, not as an emergency or even longer-term assistance, but as their just dues. 
historically speaking, and because of the current way that the neoliberal system operates. There's women who've been donating their work to a patriarchal economy for centuries, people of color who've been forced to subsidize the very system that oppresses them. Obviously, this package is not going to turn that all around, but with increased Medicare benefits, climate change funding, which is super important too, citizenship to millions of immigrants who are doing essential work throughout the country, guaranteed pre-kindergarten, the paid family and uh, medical leave for parents, the child care credit that you talked about, all these are, are, are measures that do change the structure of the economy as well as having a tremendous impact on the daily lives of people and particularly vulnerable sectors. So this puts the economy on a different footing. It's not everything that we need or want for a just feminist transition, but it is a step that contributes to the well-being and empowers people to continue to press for other kinds of, of progressive change. It's very important at some point to make sure that the child credit, the child care credits that you mentioned, go to the primary caregiver. Uh, we know that domestic violence and labor discrimination are built on the fact that men control the money within the family economy. And to break those cycles and really recognize women requires a formal recognition that they usually are the primary caregivers and they have not been recognized in the past. So that's uh, another aspect that needs to be taken into account. As far as the resistance is concerned, I don't think the amount is the real problem here, as stated in the media clip, and as uh, the Republicans and the dissidents, the conservative Democrats, really, uh, you know, try to make us believe. They're not. Their fundamental concern is not inflation or the deficit. Their fundamental concern is the defense of the interests of the super rich. Um, and we have to we have to understand that there's going to be this kind of pushback on a measure like this that would raise taxes on the wealthy and that would facilitate a more uh, equitable distribution of wealth within the country. And those people have to be called out for what they're really doing. And they have to be called out from the base, from their own voting constituencies, that they are representing the interests of a small minority. They should not have this power of obstruction that they currently have. And we have to figure out how to get around it, and I, and I think that that's going to take a lot more grassroots mobilization. Absolutely. And uh, Jackie Goldberg, a, a couple of things here. I mean, one of the uh, things in the legislation is this climate um, civilian climate core, as it's called. And the, the idea would be to employ tens of thousands of young people to fight climate change. And many people are com comparing that to FDR. I, I don't remember what it was called then, but there was a core of people really large that went around, um, you know, helping to develop parks, making pathways and bridges and, and that sort of thing. So there's comparison uh, made to that as well. 
So I wonder your your thoughts on this, given the climate crisis, but also the whole uh, reconciliation process, because uh, Laura Carlson mentioned a bit about what's not in the um, the Build Back Better Act now. We see the pushback that's happening. The Democrats are forced really to go through a reconciliation process because they just don't have enough votes in the Senate uh, with the filibuster, you know, as it stands now. So there's a lot of nervousness because we know compromises are going to be made and what's going to happen. I mean, Biden seems to trying to create a pivot in a way to say infrastructure has to include a care economy, but then you have the right wing pushing back against some of the care economy proposals around increasing pay for home care workers who are a lot of women of color and very uh, low wage, but also the child tax credit. And some are actually saying that there should be a, a forced work requirement for in order to get the child tax credit, uh, setting aside the fact that uh, being a mom and being a caregiver in itself is work. It just is work without pay. Jackie Goldberg. Well, I think what we're seeing is the fact that the Democratic Party has a big tent. You know, um, that's really what's happened. A, a lot of people who would have been Republicans are in the Democratic Party because of Trump. And there are a lot of Democrats who are in those uh, states where every election for them is a tough one. We have several here in Southern California as well. Katie um, Porter is one of them, for example. So the negotiations will go on within the party, and they will come up with something because they can't afford not to. You know, you can't have the Senate, the House, even though they're narrow, you can't control the entire federal government and then say, but oops, we couldn't get anything really done. So it is important to every Democrat, even those in those difficult, uh, difficult uh, races, that something happen. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that something will happen. What will happen is not as optimistic. So let's just take a look at the whole notion of the opposition to having uh, negotiations uh, with all the major drugs in Medicare. Well, you know, you have yeah. people in that group of three that voted in the 29-29 who represent, like in San Diego, a lot of pharmaceutical companies are in San Diego. So for them, it's about jobs and all of this. What I'm saying to you is this. There will be a very big bill. Whether it will be $3.5 trillion, I'm not sure. But it will happen because the Democrats know that to not do anything will be worse for them in the 22 elections. That's why I'm optimistic. I'm not optimistic that we'll get all the things that we need, but there is general agreement on some of the issues because some of these things have been standard practice in Europe for years already, like child care, like affordable quality child care. But, you know, people don't realize that in the United States during the uh, World War II, we had the best, uh, really, affordable child care system in the world. Uh, that's because women needed to go into the factories while the men were off fighting the war. And, you know, it was really the uh, right wing that, after the war, said, oh, well, we need the women to go back to being housewives, and therefore, you know, my God, uh, let's get rid of child care, because if they have child care, they won't go back to being housewives. We right now have a state in, Cal in, state in the United States, in the south, the deep south, Arkansas, has been for years dealing with child care, has the best child care system. We know it works. We know that investing in young children makes huge outcomes in the outer years. 
And we're going to get some of that, but it's going to be hard because there are people in the uh, Democratic Party who are basically quite conservative. And I don't just mean the blue dog uh, coalition, but I mean people who would have under ordinary circumstances, non-Trump circumstances, wouldn't even be Democrats. So what we're seeing here now is a re-changing of the party structure. We have a one-party system. Uh, that's because there's no chance that the Republicans will be, in my opinion, able to do anything, even if they were to take back the Senate or the House, which, by the way, is not a foregone conclusion, because really what we saw in California was an example of using Trump as a way to uh, deal with uh, the uh, recall of Newsom. So what I'm saying is, is that the big tent is what we're looking at. We're looking at a negotiation within the party as if the party were the only governing people. And that's realistic because the Republicans are not participating except negatively. Right. And uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, thank you uh, for that, Jackie Goldberg. Um, this week, we are marking the 10th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, as I said in the introduction. And it does seem as though with this plan of Biden from the Civilian uh, Climate Corps, which, you know, we'll have to see if that happens. I mean, it's a kind of a, a, a care income for people who are caring for the environment, uh, frankly, just as the child tax credit. It, rec is, it does recognize in part that um, what moms and what caregivers do is work and that raising children is expensive and that um, they absolutely need support. But a lot of people are calling this socialism and pushing back that Biden is taking the country in this socialist direction, which is just terrible. And I, I wonder your thoughts on this, because people are uh, making comparisons to FDR's uh, New Deal. Uh, but also in it, Biden has made a point to say, for example, that home care workers uh, caring for people in their homes, uh, right, um, should be earning um, sustainable and living wages. Right now, they're very, very low wage, and they tend to be a lot of black women, um, depending on what part of the country you are. If it's on the East Coast, maybe a lot of people of Haitian descent. If you're in an area with a high, higher Latinx population, maybe um, women of, of a Latin descent, of Latinx descent, immigrant women, et cetera, working for very, very low wages. So there's a lot here in this uh, package because it really does, in so many ways, redefine infrastructure. And Biden is calling it a care economy, that we have to move in the direction of a care economy. Your thoughts, Dr. Horn? Well, what I call the Bernie Sanders bill, since he's the main author, uh, poses a fundamental question, which is can the Donald Trump working class base be bought off with social democracy? That is to say, hovering over this $3.5 trillion bill, the biggest reform measure since the New Deal of the 1930s, ironically, is January 6th. And I think hovering over it all are the bombshell revelations in the book by Bob Woodward and his colleague in the Washington Post, Robert Costa, which will be published on Tuesday, which points to the fact that on January 6th, we were much closer to a coup d'etat than we realized. Then CIA Director Gina Haspel said that we were headed to a right-wing coup. Uh, we did not know that we might have been heading to Armageddon simultaneously, 
insofar as the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, according to Woodward and Costa, um, General Milley uh, helped to avert a nuclear strike against China that Mr. Trump would engineer in order to declare an emergency so he could continue his rule. And then Secretary of State Michael Pompeo, of, of, of all persons, has suggested that he was alarmed by the infiltration of so-called neo-Nazis to the highest level of the Department of Defense. And I think that when historians of the future look at the transformation of Joseph R. Biden from state centrist to finding his inner FDR, they may uh, tap into what I've just talked about. That is to say, this alarming turn of events at the beginning of 2021 and this idea that the Democrats had to move aggressively because they felt that they had to do something to try to avert another kind of fascist-minded coup. And it would be ironic idea, indeed if a, an attempted fascist coup uh, led to social democracy, although it's not unusual because, of course, Cold War pressures uh, led to anti-Jim Crow measures in the 1950s. And so far as the United States, in order to compete better with the then-Soviet Union, felt it had to improve its human rights record. The problem is, is that I'm not so certain that these right-wing trends have disappeared altogether. We may find out as much tomorrow, September 18th, with this rally designed to of January 6th protesters. And of course, uh, fencing is now guarding the Capitol once again, although we're being told that we have nothing to worry about. But then they, the FBI said the same thing on January 5th, 2021. I would point listeners to a column by Kevin Williamson of the National Review, the conservative publication, the New York Times, where he suggested that January 6th was just the beginning, that the United States can uh, basically uh, look forward to, I'm afraid, to uh, many other attempted coups. And I think that it's very important that this congressional committee uh, led by Congressman Benny Thompson of Mississippi will be investigating because I think that what they may uncover is that there are higher levels of this January 6th coup that have yet to be revealed even by uh, Woodward and Costa in their upcoming book. And then, of course, we all know that even with regard to the 2022 elections in 2024, for which this bill is designed to provide some cover, uh, we're already confronting uh, voter suppression, and uh, which may uh, curb turnout. And as well, uh, we also know that one of the reasons why the New Deal passed was because it contained measures that discriminated explicitly against black workers. And so a question is, will the Trump base be satisfied if black workers in this Sanders bill are receiving uh, equal benefits? And then the overriding question for the U.S. budget is, once again, going back to the great society of the 1960s, can the United States afford guns and butter? That is to say, the Pentagon budget is being increased. At the same time, we're talking about this Sanders bill, increasing social welfare measures. And the question is, even if the United States, even as a superpower, can afford both guns and borders. But, right. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Horn. Uh, what we're going to do is we'll take our station break now. When we return, don't go away. There's a lot more to discuss with our panelists who will stay with us for the rest of the hour. Coming up, uh, U.S. foreign policy, uh, the Biden administration now seems to be in a lot of 
in, in some hot water getting some backlash about this deal um, to a military partnership with Australia and the UK, which has roundly upset uh, China, of course, as well as France and other countries in the EU. And then uh, the California governor recall election. Um, what is prioritized now? What lessons can be learned from it? So stay with us. We'll be right back. In the morning, when I rise. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. You can check out our website at www.sotrueradio.org where we have a community calendar and much more. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at Radio, And we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And in our tradition, I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Middletown, Delaware, Middletown, Delaware, and internationally, we want to welcome some new listeners in Bangladesh. It is our weekly roundtable, and our panelists are Dr. Gerald Horn, Jackie Goldberg, and Laura Carlson. Now on Wednesday, September 15th, President Biden announced a military partnership with Australia and the UK as the administration ramps up efforts to counter what it describes as China's rising economic and military power. Let us go now to hear President Biden on this. Today, we're taking another historic step to deepen and formalize cooperation among all three of our nations. Because we all recognize the imperative of ensuring peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific over the long term. We need to be able to address both the current strategic environment in the region and how it may evolve. Because the future of each of our nations, and indeed the world, depends on a free and open Indo-Pacific enduring and flourishing in the decades ahead. This initiative is about making sure that each of us has a modern capability the most modern capabilities we need to maneuver and defend against rapidly evolving threats. AUKUS will bring together our sailors, our scientists, and our industries to maintain and expand our edge in military capabilities and critical technologies such as cyber, <coughs> artificial intelligence, quantum technologies, and undersea domains. Now, as a key project under AUKUS, we are launching consultations with Australia's acquisition of conventionally armed nuclear-powered submarines for its Navy. Conventionally armed. I want to be exceedingly clear about this. We're not talking about nuclear-armed submarines. These are conventionally armed submarines that are powered by nuclear reactors. This technology is proven. It's safe. And the United States and the UK have been operating nuclear-powered submarines for decades. The United States will also continue to work with ASEAN and the Quad, as was stated earlier, our five treaty allies and other close partners in the Indo-Pacific, as well as allies and partners in Europe and around the world to maintain a free and open Indo-Pacific and build a future of peace, opportunity for all the people of the region. 
Um, this is one of the first U.S. moves as part of the agreement, um, to which will be to help Australia access uh, nuclear-powered uh, submarines, a move which anti-war campaigners across the globe have denounced. Some say this forms part of a broader shift and pivot of U.S. foreign policy away from traditional U.S. allies to Southeast Asia. Now, on Thursday, September 16th, Chinese Foreign Minister spokesperson said that the pact, quote, seriously undermined regional peace and stability, exacerbated the arms race, and determined international nuclear non and undermined international nuclear non-proliferation efforts, something that all parties involved, the U.S. and Australia and the U.K., roundly uh, deny. They say it is in keeping with nuclear non-proliferation efforts. Uh, meanwhile, the new uh, deal also angered the government of France, a longtime U.S. ally, which was left out of the deal. And in fact, France lost out billions of dollars an arrangement they had with Australia that then got dropped uh, as a result of this deal. The government of France canceled a scheduled gala in Washington, D.C. that was planned uh, for Friday, September 17th to mark the 240th anniversary of the Battle of the Capes, a French naval victory that helped the colonists of the uh, American Revolution. They have also been growing tensions between the United States and the European Union, especially following the messy withdrawal from Afghanistan and Europe trying to stand much more on its own and find its way in a post-Angela Merkel of Germany era. She is on her way out. She was seen very much of a, as a stabilizing uh, force in Europe. Dr. Horn, we're actually going to start with you on this because clearly um, the the Australia, the UK, or President Biden, no one mentioned China, but we know all of this is about China. Dr. Horn. It certainly is all about China. And I should also add that it's possible that Cold War II, which we're in the midst of, the Cold War against China, uh, might be over before it begins. Because what this Australian-British-US deal raises is the possibility that the North Atlantic countries will be disunited in regard to their confrontation with the People's Republic of China. And it's unclear if they can prevail if they're squabbling with each other. Uh, keep in mind that just before Biden was sworn into office in January 2021, that the European Union had inked a massive trade and investment deal with the People's Republic of China. I dare say that after a brief hiatus, that deal will probably go forward. And you should also expect more hawkishness on the part of France, which, as you know, for decades has been a kind of outlier with regard to the so-called transatlantic alliance, uh, withdrawing from the military wing of NATO uh, years ago, and of course uh, post the Suez uh, crisis of 1956, uh, trying to develop a more independent foreign policy as opposed to London. London. There's also a danger that the Quad, Japan, Australia, India, and the United States, which is scheduled to meet in a few days, and there's also another anti-China cabal, might also be facing pressures as well, because apparently Japan and India uh, feel 
that they were not properly consulted with regard to this uh, so-called Oscars deal, not to mention the fact that India is upset by the ham-fisted U.S. evacuation from Afghanistan, which basically meant that Afghanistan will now be used as a platform by which uh, New Delhi can be attacked by its age-old rivals, speaking of Pakistan. And then there's the larger uh, problem that the EU faces, which is that with Brexit, there is this lingering fear that Britain will somehow be used as a spearhead against the European Union, particularly since there's all of these major issues with regard to the divorce bill uh, with Brussels that have yet to be uh, unraveled and decided. And then the United States is faced with a contradiction because on the one hand, the United States pressures the European so-called allies to spend more on defense. But on the other hand, there is a fear that if they do spend more on defense, they'll pull away from the U.S.-dominated NATO. And I think that that's what's about to happen. And we should not forget another event that is also of moment uh, that speaks to the United States' efforts to lock down the so-called backyard as it forays around the world. And I'm speaking of the point that as we speak, the Cuban leader, Diaz-Canel, is in Mexico City uh, helping Mexico uh, mark the 200th anniversary of its independence. And that portends a strengthening of the left-leaning bloc in Latin America, which too is tied closely to China, which is not necessarily good news for U.S. imperialism. Right, and uh, thank you, Dr. Horn. And, and Laura Carlson, on that note, um, Dr. Horn talked about uh, south of the border, and you um, may be interested in making the connection with this ganging up that's happening on uh, China and the fight for um, resources. Um, Boris Johnson made it very, very clear that part of what they're doing is also protecting trade in the region. Uh, so, uh, Laura Carlson, your thoughts on all this? There's absolutely a tie between this latest policy, which is an absolutely, it's a bizarre agreement, and it's the complete opposite of peace building. Um, China called it also an outdated Cold War zero-sum mentality. And on this, many, many nations, particularly in the global south, would agree and are extremely concerned. Because so what this means is that what they're seeing is two nations, the United States and China, fighting over, uh, over access to resources in the global south that do not belong to either of them. Right now is the bicentennial anniversary, 200 years of independence in the Central American countries, where indigenous peoples and others have launched a campaign called Nothing to Celebrate. It's been 200 years of oppression, plunder, and repression of their constant resistance to these measures. Now with this new Cold War, they're once again in the crosshairs as Biden sets out on this offensive to guarantee U.S. global control of both markets and resources, what they call natural goods, uh, that they don't even consider there so much as part of the planet and the bio and the ecosystem that we all live in. And this includes access, of course, to the Global South resources. So instead of fighting China for natural resources, whose exploitation on, uh, excuse me, 
furthermore destroys the planet and the communities around them, it's really important to listen to these indigenous peoples. They are the teachers at this moment in our history, in our human history. And instead of these unsustainable development uh, projects that are being contemplated and protected through this militarism that we're seeing um, on the increase, especially through this agreement lately, it's time to look toward these models of consuming less and have a more sustainable relationship with nature. You can see in this agreement that, as Dr. Horn said, uh, Joe Biden is no longer channeling his inner FDR, but doing the complete office of what would be a good neighbor policy. And in this, he's completely alienated uh, Europe, which has to make some decisions about what they do from here on forward. Basically, it's a neo-colonialist pact between Great Britain, the United States, and the neo-colonialist regional proxy, which is Australia. And not even the countries in the region were consulted or in any way formed part of, uh, of this strategy of nuclear submarines in the area. So this is a terrible sign going forward. And um, and we do have to watch it. And then just finally, the meeting with the Cuban president here in Mexico is actually just the next small step in what has been a gradual um, building up of South-South contacts that are specifically oriented to greater independence, self-determination in foreign policy, and to reducing the hegemony of the United States in the region. Right, thank you, Laura Carlton. And, and Jackie Goldberg, um, uh, two things here. You likely would want to uh, make a comment on that, on this deal. Uh, also, you know, Biden is having this summit um, with world leaders on the environment. And given the timing, uh, China, it's a little unclear now whether China is even going to bother to participate um, at all. It gives them a way out here. But also, Jackie Goldberg, we will need for you to lead us in into looking at the clock, a discussion of the California uh, recall election. Uh, we know you did a lot of work around that and your thoughts uh, given the victory of Newsom and what are some of the key things that he's gonna have to grapple with now. I'm just seeing a report, by the way, um, of the Mercury uh, News that are saying that he's abolishing single family zoning in California. Uh, Jackie Goldberg. Yes, well, I think uh, the election was really a Trump election. Uh, I think that fact that uh, Larry Elder was the principal candidate expected to uh, take over if, uh, if he was recalled had a big impact. But I think the biggest impact on the election was uh, the fact that so many people worked very hard when the ballots first arrived on August 16th, 17th, and 18th to get people to turn them in, because at the time that we got our ballots in California, the polls showed a 50-50 chance of Newsom being recalled. I think the polling helped dramatically because it meant people like me and others who had, you know, sort of assumed this was all going to be all right, uh, began immediately saying that our goal was to get as many people, many Democrats to vote as humanly possible. And I think that's really elder and that helped. The other things that helped, though, were that all of the candidates were talking about changing the COVID response. And California has been very proud of the fact 
that we've had a very good COVID response on the whole compared to other large states. And that is because uh, our governor has uh, invoked uh, many things to require mandating masks, mandating uh, vaccinations for parts of the, of the uh, government body. And I think that, so there was a combination of things. It was, I think, though, primarily Trump, amongst the people I worked with, that motivated people. And that one poll section in August, right about when we got our ballots, it said that, that he could actually lose this when many of us thought, this is a blue state, there's no danger. I think the main lessons are that Trumpism doesn't work everywhere. Uh, that the Republicans know this. The Republicans are already discussing in this state and in other states whether or not an endorsement by Trump, which gets you a Trumpism, Trumpist in the primary, means you have a person who can't win the general election. And I think that's an, an issue that's going to be raised in Republican uh, areas, in state legislatures, and even in congressional battles. Because the reality is, is that uh, while the Republicans that are left calling themselves Republican are still mostly Trumpists, they re re represent a much smaller number of people than the Republican Party used to represent. And so there are many Republicans running in close statewide elections and in congressional elections who begin to think that having Trump endorsement may be a problem for them because they may not be able to get through the primary, the Republican primary, and they have the best chance of winning as opposed to the Trump-nominated person. So this is a very complicated situation, but I do think very much that California has suggested some things we need to do to motivate the Democratic base. Because if the Democratic base turns out like it did in 2020, in 2022, we will reverse the trend in history, which is the party in power loses seats. Right. Thank you, Jackie Goldberg. And, and Dr. Horn, we'll have to end with you there, a quick comment on the California election, but also in terms of the culture wars. I mean, uh, clearly COVID uh, was a big uh, plus for uh, Newsom, actually, his handling of it. And then in the rap community, there's the flap about Nicki Minaj and the comment, the misinformation she put out about uh, COVID uh, vaccines. And also there is a, a, a worrying trend among men of color. You see increasing numbers of black men that are voting um, Republican and also uh, Latinx men uh, voting Republican. This is very different from um, black women, for example. There's a huge contrast, actually, uh, between those two. Uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, you'll have the final uh, word on our roundtable today. Well, with regard to the latter point, uh, I think we need to realize that black men are most likely to be imprisoned, most likely to be shot and manhandled by the police. And then there's the companion issue that the black community in general faces collective punishment whenever one black person does something that's considered to be wrong. The whole community can be punished, so it should not come as a surprise that many people might want to distance themselves from that collectivity and that's not necessarily uh, endemic to, to black men. Uh, in fact, black men might just be the leading edge. What I mean is, is that to the extent that this country continues to move to the right, it should not be shocking or surprising that many individuals decide to move along with it. And uh, black women may not necessarily be immune to this tendency. Just tune into Fox News and watch Candace Owens or Diamond and Silk 
and you might get a premonition of what I'm talking about. I think it's also fair to say that if we're going to racialize the electorate, it might be well to look at how Euro-American women are voting, which who oftentimes vote more than 50% for the right wing. And if there are those who are sincerely interested about turning this country around, there needs to be a concerted campaign to educate and uh, politicize that particular segment of the community. Because if you look at California, black voters are only about 6 to 7% of the electorate, and so that means black men are about 3%. And then of that 3%, people will have their hair on fire because 75% of that 3% are voting against the right as opposed to 90%. Well, I mean, there's something wrong with that. Right. So thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Dr. Horn, um, just, uh, you know, very, very quickly uh, on on this this point as well. Um, any thoughts on, on the flap over the uh, the Nicki uh, Minaj <laughs> um, flap? Particularly since uh, her comrades were picketing the CDC. In Atlanta the other day. So already there is a gathering sentiment amongst many blacks, influential blacks, particularly professional athletes, you might have noticed, to steer clear of the vaccine. And obviously, as with other issues involving the black community, this is complicated and cannot just simply be connected to the general widespread anti vaxxer sentiment in the United States of America. Right. On that note, we are going to have to leave it there. Another fascinating roundtable. I'd like to thank all of our panelists and today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our audio engineer, Kiana Williams, and uh, props to our assistant producer, uh, Romero Funes, who is rises early and uh, does quite a lot of uh, work behind the scenes uh, for our show. Um, so if you'd like to get a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at one 800 735 Go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. Uh, Thank you for listening, and you all, please remember to stay safe. Keep on keeping it what you love, and you'll find that someday soon enough you will